Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast, episode 280. I'm your host, Corbin Barthold. It's my first time hosting. I'm very excited to be here, especially because our guest today is the founder of Tech Freedom, Baron Soka, frequent guest and friend of the show. Baron, how are you doing? Uh, well, I'm sad not to be interviewed by Ash, but uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation and having you uh, run the podcast uh, in the near future. Wonderful. Well, I'm very glad to have you. As I've told you before, you speak in full paragraphs, uh, and I'm always very impressed on these kinds of things that you do. So I'm, I'm glad to be with you. And I'm sorry that I'm not Ashkin, but I will do my best. Today we're talking about a topic that actually you and she have worked on extensively, Section 230. And there's a debate, a, a raging Twitter debate about, about, is it Section 230 of the Communications Act of 1934 or of the Communications Decency Act? Uh, actually, it's more complicated than that. Uh, it's, uh, it's originally the Internet Empowerment uh, and Family Protection Act, uh, which was drafted in the House by Representative Chris Cox, a Republican, Representative Ron Wyden, Democrat. They had their own bill. That bill was added to the uh, House version of the Telecommunications Act of 1995, which was the first major update to the Communications Act of, 1990, of 1934. And, uh, and that bill was melded together with the Senate version of the Telecommunications Act of what became 1996, uh, which had a completely antithetical amendment added to it, just as happened in the House. And that was the uh, Senator Exxon, uh, who was uh, the William Jennings Bryan of his day, a Nebraska senator who wanted to clean up the internet and protect it from pornography, had developed his own bill called the Communications Decency Act, which also started as a standalone bill. And that bill said the federal government was going to hold you liable for making it possible for minors to access uh, indecent content. Uh, so those, those two Bill, Section 230 in the House and the Exxon Bill, the Communications Decency Act, were both worked into the Telecommunications Act versions in each chamber, and those things were melded together into the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which amended the 1934 Communications Act. And that's how we have the mess we have today, wherein the only part of the Communications Decency Act of 1996 that is still left standing after the Supreme Court's 1997 decision in ACLU versus Reno is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And thanks to all of that rigmarole, uh, the, the causal chain has led you down to writing a chapter for the Global Antitrust Institute in its new report on the digital economy, which is our, our topic today. The report is amazing. I believe, it, it, I believe it's over 1,300 pages uh, great scholars in there, former FTC commissioners, prominent law professors, but your chapter is Section 230, An Introduction for Antitrust and Consumer Protection Practitioners. You're among great company, but let's talk specifically about your, your chapter. We've already gotten into a bit about Section 230. Why was it created? Why was it passed by Congress? Uh, one aspect I did, I don't think I caught in your explanation, though, is that Representative Cox and Wyden, they were responding in part to court decisions that had really created a moderator's dilemma for Internet content providers. Could you tell me more about that? 
Yeah, well, the moderator's dilemma in a nutshell is that you have a perverse incentive uh, not to moderate content because it makes you more liable to be sued. Uh, Congress understood that, Representative uh, Cox, Representative Wyden understood that, and that's why their bill passed overwhelmingly in the House. I mean, it was uh, uh, 420-some to uh, four, I think. We have the exact number in the paper. Uh, but the point was to prevent the fear of liability from discouraging moderation of content. Uh, and there had been two court decisions that had uh, created that fear. Uh, Cubby versus CompuServe in 1991 uh, is often held as, uh, as being the opposite of the moderator's dilemma because uh, in that case, CompuServe, which was uh, an early dial-up uh, service provider, uh, was not held liable for content. Uh, but most people forget that the court went out of its way to say that that's because CompuServe didn't have uh, actual uh, knowledge of the defamatory nature of the content at issue. So the moderator's dilemma concern there was that if you were very active in monitoring your network, you might gain that knowledge. And even under that decision, you might have had the opposite result, that the, the service provider could have been held liable. So that was uh, was actually a bad decision from the perspective of avoiding the moderator's dilemma. Things got much worse in 1995 when uh, Prodigy was held liable for defamatory material because uh, unlike uh, in the situation in, in uh, CompuServe uh, versus Cubby, uh, uh, Prodigy was, uh, was, was actually trying to create a family-friendly version of uh, internet dial-up service. Uh, so that was the situation in 1995, uh, and Cox wanted to make sure that websites were not held liable for attempting to clean up content, whether that's because the, the, the fact of cleaning up content increased their liability, as in Prodigy, or because potentially gaining knowledge of the illegal nature of content, as in CompuServe, uh, might have increased their liability as, uh, as distributors. And uh, so Section 230 provides a really elegant solution. It, it says in, in Section 230C1 that uh, providers of interactive computer services are just not liable for content created by others. You've just touched on C1. So as you know, Section 230 really, it, it's a very, it's a pretty short statute, but it has two crucial provisions, one of which is C1 that you've just discussed. The other is C2A. So how do those two pieces fit together? Well, C2A, uh, is, it is important. There, there are three immunities in the statute. Um, we can talk about C2B as well. Each of them is important, but in the debate that's happened over the last year, uh, where Republicans have, in a nutshell, argued that C1 should only protect content that you do put up, and C2A should be the only provision that takes that protects content that you take down or otherwise moderate. Uh, in making those arguments, Republicans have have consistently misrepresented how the statute has been applied. In the overwhelming majority of cases, uh, it is C1 that resolves the issue. Uh, you have this situation where, if you imagine the Venn diagrams, removal of content is protected by both provisions, uh, but in different ways. Uh, C2A uh, has a very different structure. So C1, as I said, says uh, you're not 
responsible as the publisher of information provided by another information content provider. And when it says that, there's an important nuance that's embedded in that that you have to read the definitions to understand, which is that uh, you become an information content provider yourself and therefore are not covered by C1 if you are responsible, even in part, for the development of content. So in other words, C1 protects you for content that you do not create if you remove it, if you're the provider or a user of an interactive computer service. So for example, uh, it's not just uh, social media sites that moderate content on their services, but uh, if I retweet uh, someone else's content, uh, I can use Section 230 C1 to have that lawsuit dismissed. And President Trump has done exactly that. Uh, the same is true for forwarding emails. Uh, as long as you are not responsible for creating the content, C1 protects you. C2A works very differently. C2A says you are uh, not liable, regardless of whether you created the content, uh, if you act in good faith to remove or otherwise restrict access to content that uh, you consider to fall into a few categories or, or to be otherwise objectionable. Uh, so those just those work very differently, and uh, I would say that they are boot, uh, a belt and suspender approach that C2A ensures that, for example, if you have tried to uh, edit content on your service or otherwise uh, change its appearance in ways that might lead you to be held liable for it, for developing it, C1 would not protect you, but C2A would. Well, I think you've touched on two of what are, to my mind, the biggest fallacies or misunderstandings that are floating around of the, of the many that are floating around in this conversation, one of which is that Section 230 is somehow a gift to large technology corporations. It really protects anybody who's not speaking the content uh, that they are repeating, retweeting, for example. The other one is that you see these people, oh, well, you've, uh, you've moderated, so now you're a, you're a publisher. And they use the word publisher as if this is a big gotcha that now you're liable. The big decision after the law was passed, Zarin versus America Online, addressed this issue, and it uses the word publisher almost in exactly the opposite way that you see people now use it. Uh, that decision, I think many federal judges wish they get this opportunity where they're the first person and they can really lay out the definitive word on a law. It's a Fourth Circuit decision. It's Judge Harvey Wilkinson, very prominent, very sharp judge got to to really put his stamp on the meaning of the law and confirm its meaning. Do you want to talk at all about that decision? Yeah, well, I want to point out, first of all, that uh, while Republicans claim that uh, somehow liberal courts misinterpreted the statute, uh, Judge Wilkinson was uh, really a hero to conservatives for a very long time and was really the first uh, chief judge to lead a what was considered a very conservative circuit, the Fourth Circuit. So in 1997 in Zaran, uh, he concluded that lawsuits seeking to hold a service provider liable for its exercise of a publisher's traditional editorial functions, such as deciding whether to publish, withdraw, postpone, or alter content, are barred. In other words, C1 protects the editorial discretion that is protected by the First Amendment. Uh, this is a lot like anti-slap laws. 
Uh, so uh, strategic lawsuits against public participation, SLAPs, are a real problem. And most states in the country have these anti-SLAP laws that allow you to uh, get lawsuits dismissed without early on in the litigation process without having to litigate on all of the uh, points of First Amendment analysis. Zarian essentially says that uh, C1 is very similar to that. It protects, it gives you a way of short-circuiting litigation uh, at the very beginning of the process based on uh, lawsuits that seek to hold you liable for the exercise of your editorial discretion as a publisher. So uh, that decision is very clear. That's why, as I said, almost all cases have been resolved on C1 grounds uh, regarding content moderation. And the debate that we've been having over the last year is about Republicans' efforts to reinterpret the law or have Congress rewrite it such that uh, C1 would only apply to content that you that you actually put up, and C2A would only would be the only thing that protects content that you remove, and then they would restrict the kinds of of uh, content moderation decisions that are protected by C2A. So again, the Global Antitrust Institute invited you to write a chapter, uh, and I should have mentioned to everyone uh, the Global Antitrust Institute, great organization with the Scalia Law School. They do a lot of very important work in this area, and I once again, everybody should check out the full report. But you were asked specifically to talk about the intersection between Section 230 and antitrust law and consumer protection. What is interesting about that intersection in particular? Well, to my knowledge, I think this is the first paper to really do that. Uh, and, and in part, that's because uh, there just there actually uh, isn't a lot of uh, room for serious debate here when you really uh, look at the law. And there are good reasons why we haven't seen a lot of lawsuits brought here. Um, but but the, the very short high-level analysis is that uh, we don't need to amend 230 to uh, allow antitrust claims to proceed because 230 already doesn't apply to antitrust claims. You can already bring, if you have a, if a valid claim, you can already bring it. Uh, on the consumer protection side, uh, the, the arguments that people, mainly conservatives, uh, have made invoking the consumer protection laws are not going to work for First Amendment reasons anyway. Uh, and so, so 230 is not the thing that bars those suits. So in both cases, to answer the question, you really have to understand uh, how the First Amendment applies and why uh, websites uh, can't be sued for uh, disassociating themselves with speech, which is really what we're talking about here. Well, I'm going to lob a real softball at you because we've been talking now about how the First Amendment and 230 interact. And I think uh, actually, you know, I mentioned two big misunderstandings. This is a third. Why is it that these large platforms don't have to worry about being treated as some kind of utility where they are responsible for acting as uh, a fair, fair is not even right the word. Why is this not their responsibility? Why are they able to moderate as they like under the First Amendment? Uh, great question. That question is presented squarely by the president's executive order from, from late May, which asserts that these sites are public fora that are not uh, protected by the First Amendment, and rather 
that have to justify their exercise of editorial discretion, just like any government agency would. Uh, that, that argument is so ridiculous that it would be laughed out of court and an attorney that made that argument uh, could be sanctioned. Uh, that argument rests on misrepresenting and misquoting the Supreme Court's decision in Packingham, uh, where Justice Kennedy, uh, in one of his very breezy, lofty opinions, uh, waxes poetical about the internet and social media being um, the modern town square and uh, critical for participation in democracy. That's the kind of thing that Justice Kennedy said all the time. It's one of his last decisions issued on the court. Uh, but that case says nothing at all about the question of whether these private companies are the equivalent of government agencies. And the state action at issue in that case uh, was a state law that barred sex offenders from accessing those services. So all Justice Kennedy was saying was the state law affects a significant harm to First Amendment rights because it's important for everybody to be able to use these services. And that, that quote has been twisted uh, by people who are not making arguments in good faith uh, into saying that, oh, bingo, therefore these are uh, state actors and they don't have First Amendment rights and they have to justify uh, their decisions. Uh, even Justice Alito at the time, uh, staunch conservative, uh, chided Justice Kennedy and the majority for that quote, undisciplined dicta, in other words, uh, portions of the uh, opinion that are not actually relevant to the holding and have no legal merit, and asked his colleagues to be, quote, more attentive to the implications of its rhetoric in likening the internet to parks and, and public streets. Uh, so you can read in the paper why this is just, uh, this argument is not a serious argument, um, but uh, if you're not convinced, uh, the court has made more clear since in its Halleck decision that uh, providing a platform for the speech of others is not a traditional public function. That case involved public access channels on uh, cable networks. Uh, so what the, where that leaves us is that uh, websites have the same First Amendment rights that newspaper publishers do. And the controlling case there is Miami Herald where the court said that uh, you get to decide how you run your, your service and what goes in it and what doesn't. And the court supplied that approach very consistently to other digital media. It really is unfortunate. I think we're never going to be rid of this misunderstanding as long as we're having this discussion with 230 because public forum is it has a common sense meaning that people think of and it has a technical legal term of art meaning and it is just unfortunate unless lawyers and judges come up with a new term for what they mean when they are discussing government controlled public forum i think this is going to pop up again and again and again yeah especially when you have people uh who have uh, argue have have strong incentives to make uh these arguments regardless of what the law says that's true, which is a, a whole other issue maybe I, we can touch on at the end of, of the big picture and what's going on with the culture at large and, and what it says about this law uh, or what this law says about the culture. At any rate, so you've said a lot about First Amendment protection and how it is 
in large part coextensive with 230. But then uh, why why have 230 if everybody who is being targeted here, the, the platforms and speakers are already protected by the First Amendment? What does the law add to the equation? Yeah, a lot. I mean, the exact same question could be asked about anti-slap laws. Why did we... Uh, why did the uh, journalistic community uh, go to such lengths to get anti-slap laws passed in every in nearly every state in the country? Uh, the answer is because it's really difficult to defend against a lawsuit, even when you have a, a clear First Amendment right. By the same token, Section 230 provides a mechanism to resolve litigation early on in the process. And that is critical at the scale of the internet because you're dealing with a level of content of billions of posts put up every day where it would be impossible to screen content the way that a newspaper has to screen letters to the editor or op-ed. So you'd get what Judge Kaczynski, another uh, great conservative judge, called in in his roommates.com decision, uh, you would wind up with death by 10,000 duck bites. Uh, you would be uh, so uh, hammered with lawsuits as a website operator uh, that it would be impossible to to litigate all of them. Uh, and you'd create a heckler's veto for anybody that wanted to sue. And that's especially problematic when we're talking about content moderation, because you'd essentially give a weapon to those who want to litigate to try to take down uh, content that they don't like or stop content moderation decisions that they think hurt them. And that's what we've been seeing over the last year. Uh, Republicans' proposals to rewrite Section 230 uh, would, as I've said, uh, would make C2A the only protection for content moderation, and then would narrow the protection C2A such that removal of content like hate speech, misinformation, voter suppression, most forms of uh, foreign election interference, et cetera, et cetera, would no longer be protected by Section 230. So if you remove content for those reasons, you could be sued and you would have to defend against those lawsuits in court. And that that is, it gets us right back to the kind of moderator's dilemma that Congress was trying to avoid when it passed Section 230 to protect the right of websites to decide that they don't want to be associated with content like that. And in so doing, exercise not only their own First Amendment right, but also protect the rights of, of users who don't want to see that kind of content, and of advertisers. It's a really big part of this story. Uh, Parler, the uh, the new uh, conservative alternative social network, uh, doesn't have advertising. Uh, and the reason, it's not because uh, Google's a monopoly. It's because uh, Johnson & Johnson is not going to advertise baby soap uh, next to openly racist content or somebody glorifying the Holocaust. So. You know, these larger social media services have sustained their operations and have been able to hire large teams of people, uh, not by raising money from uh, Rebecca Mercer to to fund their operations the way that Parler has, um, but by giving a place to advertisers to advertise their products to ordinary consumers in a way that doesn't destroy their brand. It's not even clear to me what you sue for. So I've seen some pretty wacky causes of action. Uh, Lanham Act claims, um, 
all, all these all these claims that are meant for um, a rat is in your can of corn type of stuff that happens to you as a consumer. And what I don't understand is is what cause of action they even expect to fly. I there's a strong associational right under the First Amendment. You know, you have some stuff that's that's pretty uh, pretty hard to swallow, and you have to if you are going to accept the First Amendment sort of in all of its power and glory. Boy Scouts of America versus Dale is an example where, okay, the Boy Scouts um, have discriminatory policies internally and they're an association and they're allowed to do that. Um, And I think a lot of people are having a hard time accepting the fact that a platform is an association under the First Amendment. And I, I don't really see what cause of action allows you to to penetrate that fundamental right and get past a motion to dismiss. Yeah, uh, and it's especially worth noting that the same people who are making these arguments are the people who insisted that the Boy, Boy Scouts should be able to discriminate and that uh, you should be able to bake a cake and refuse to sell it to somebody because of your religious beliefs. And yet here, they refuse to acknowledge that uh, websites have uh, the kind of associational and speech rights that you're referring to. Uh, the real heart of the paper, a lot of what we've talked about thus far is is somewhat repetitious with other debates, but the real heart of the paper is explaining why those claims would fail under the consumer protection laws. In other words, the consumer protection laws go up to the limit of what the First Amendment allows. As you noted, they are generally about uh, things like the the nutritional contents of food, right? That's commercial speech. How many grams of X is in your product? and and sometimes the claims are less specific than that, but they're they're not about uh, non-commercial speech. Okay, so what we're talking about here is ultimately uh, PragerU and a variety of other websites uh, alleging that they've been treated unfairly and that uh, websites like Twitter have not lived up to their terms of service in uh, failing to provide a neutral platform. Well, those claims have been dismissed. Uh, on First Amendment grounds, and I would just refer you to our discussion in the paper of the, the PragerU case, where uh, the Ninth Circuit says that uh, statements about um, uh, helping one grow and what works best and blah, 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 uh, uh, those kinds of things that, that Twitter says, are impervious to being quantifiable and thus are non-actionable puffery. In other words, you can't bring a, a case, a consumer protection case, on uh, those kinds of uh, statements any more than you could bring a case based on uh, vague statements about a product like, you know, this is the best TV dinner in the world. It's it's really that simple. And if you really dig into this and try to imagine what kinds of claims might succeed, uh, they would be extremely narrow. Right, they couldn't be about uh, arguments about uh, uh, non-commercial speech. Uh, they're not going to, to, to be things like the um, the claim that uh, leftist advocacy groups wanted the Federal Trade Commission to bring against Fox News in 2004, when they said that Fox wasn't being uh, truthful to its consumers when it claimed to be fair and balanced. The Republican chairman of the FTC said, uh, "Sorry, but." We can't evaluate claims like that without evaluating the content of news, and that's a decision that we can't make. That's something the First Amendment leaves up to the American consumer. 
same thing is true here. That there might be very narrow uh, circumstances where uh, if a company says they, they use algorithmic moderation and not humans for something, and it turns out to be the opposite, that might be actionable. But those claims are very, very far afield from the claims that we've seen made thus far. And critically, uh, I don't think that uh, the claims that could survive uh, are really barred uh, by C1 today. This is, this is the, the part of the paper that's, um, it, it took me a while to work this through, but let's just switch to antitrust for a second. Uh, if you're protected by C1 for decisions you make as a publisher, it follows that if you're making a decision in a capacity other than as a publisher, you're not protected by C1. Uh, and indeed, that's exactly what the First Amendment case law regarding newspapers uh, says. Uh, if you uh, decide you don't want to carry uh, someone's content because it's racist, you can't bring an antitrust case against that. Um, but if you're a newspaper and you refuse to carry ads unless all of your advertisers agree to boycott the new radio station that has entered your market, uh, that's not protected by the First Amendment because you're not acting as a publisher there. You're acting uh, as, uh, as a participant in the marketplace and you're exercising market power. So that kind of claim can be brought. The First Amendment doesn't protect you against that. And because you're not acting as a publisher in that capacity, uh, nor would Section 230. And, and similarly, as I discuss in the paper, the consumer protection laws, I think, uh, if you have a very, very narrow claim, uh, such as we've just discussed, I think you might be able to bring that under Section 230. Um, but that's not what this debate is about. and That's not going to satisfy anyone. There are interesting potential edge cases. I don't think they're really what is getting discussed in the current debate. Uh, but you mentioned the, the line being, are you acting as a publisher? Are there reforms? If And for a moment, let's put aside people doing rampant hate speech and, and acknowledge that content moderation at scale is very hard. There are going to be people who get uh, blocked or uh, have posts taken down that they have good reason to feel it's they've been treated unfairly. Take those people and take reasonable politicians actually trying to amend the law in ways that have broad democratic buy-in. Are there any kind of reforms that are consistent with the First Amendment um, that you could see getting passed in a in a bill, a, a mandatory appeal process? within the platform internally or uh, requiring the platforms to issue transparency reports? Uh, the right way to, to think about that question is to ask yourself what versions of those things would be constitutional for traditional media. And, and not just as direct mandates, but suppose government gives away money all the time. Uh, the Paycheck Protection Program money went to media providers. Uh, you could very easily imagine the eligibility for that money being made conditional upon uh, having some kind of uh, disclosure about uh, the nature of your editorial discretion. Uh, so if, if you really think that the government could uh, require uh, the New York Times to uh, provide an appeals process for people who submit op-eds and get rejected, or publish a decision about why they rejected that or 
publish aggregate data or publish their criteria for making decisions. If you really think those things, uh, I, I think you don't really know anything about First Amendment jurisprudence because I, I think it's impossible that those things would actually stand up in court. Um, but I think you'd have to swallow those arguments first before uh, accepting uh, the idea that you could impose that kind of uh, argument, uh, that kind of condition upon uh, websites. Now, w there's another part of this that um, we don't get into in great detail in this paper. We do so in, in the comments that Tech Freedom filed before the FCC, uh, which is the Unconstitutional Conditions Doctrine. Uh, so we'll put a link into that. But briefly, uh, you can't uh, coerce uh, private websites into surrendering their editorial discretion uh, based on the receipt of a benefit, whether that's money or legal immunity. Uh, and uh, hilariously, the uh, administration's response to our argument in their reply comments before the FCC was, uh, oh, but look at this uh, 1959 decision in which the Supreme Court upheld that kind of uh, quid pro quo. Uh, well, what they don't mention is that was for, for broadcasters. Uh, broadcasters don't have the full protection of the First Amendment. Uh, there, is, there is no example that I'm aware of in which uh, fully protected First Amendment media uh, have been, uh, the courts have allowed them to be coerced to surrender part of their editorial discretion. Uh, and if, uh, if we were talking about Hobby Lobby um, being required to, uh, to be neutral in the decisions that it makes in its stores and to, uh, to allow Black Lives Matter protesters to put up their signs on its windows, uh, the same thing would be very clear. And yet somehow because we're talking about websites and this complicated law and making this uh, uh, condition of eligibility for legal immunity, somehow everyone loses sight of these basic First Amendment principles. Yeah, you're doing the kind of constitutional analysis that I, I wish people would just do better at. If you are looking at an organization or an institution that rubs you the wrong way and you want to take action against it, you first need to see if your ideas pass constitutional muster when applied to a group you like or an institution you approve of. And you really need to put the shoe on the other foot and, and see how those rules look to you. And so that, I think, is the right analysis. I, I would also mention broadcasters, you know, it's a special rule because we have certain media in the past that had limited uh, bandwidth. The arguments in the past have been for certain media that uh, were not unlimited because of various bottlenecks in technology. And now we have a wide open information sphere. So it's very different with these internet platforms. And even then, it was conservatives who spent 60 years arguing that uh, even though the court said that broadcasters shouldn't have full First Amendment rights, that uh, the government should end the fairness doctrine because it, it was offensive to the First Amendment. And that's ultimately exactly what President Reagan did. Uh, he, in 1987, his FCC ended the fairness doctrine and he vetoed a democratic bill to restore it. And he said that uh, history has shown that the dangers of an overly timid or biased press cannot be averted through bureaucratic regulation, but only through the freedom and competition that the First Amendment sought to guarantee. It really is that simple. And yet conservatives, because they are now obsessed with uh, victimhood and thinking that they are being censored, 
uh, have forgotten all of those lessons and are trying to use Section 230 as a hook to coerce websites into hosting speech that they find repulsive. Yeah, a lot of positions are are being dropped and people are turning on a dime. It is disappointing to see. And it connects to a concern I have. I, 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 I do have the Reagan feeling of the old line he said about, I didn't leave the Democratic Party, it left me. And, and these things shift around. I still don't understand what government involvement in this would improve. So just say you are very dissatisfied with the way the platforms are moderating content. We hear endless complaints. You think the government's going to do better, whether by setting rules or by intervening directly? That just seems preposterous to me. Well, I will just point out here that uh, today's state of the internet is not fixed in stone. We will continue to see innovation. And, uh, and Twitter is uh, reportedly moving towards a model more like uh, a little more like Reddit's model, where they decentralize content moderation. And uh, you already have the ability today, if you click on that little star at the top right of your news, uh, your news feed to uh, turn off their algorithmic filter and show tweets in chronological order. And they're apparently working on a system that would allow you to apply uh, whatever content moderation system you might want to provide. It's the the whitelist, blacklist system that you might be familiar with from a service like Adblock, where you can install Adblock in your browser, and then you can upload a whitelist or a blacklist from anywhere on the internet. So anybody can decide what that blocks. And it's not just ads. You can remove, uh, you can remove all kinds of content from what you see in your browser. Twitter is apparently uh, moving towards something similar to that. And I just want to note that uh, Section 230 in, in the third provision that we haven't talked about yet, the C2B provision, protects them for doing that. And if you didn't have that provision, if Twitter had to prove that, uh, that they were acting in good faith, which is a, a, a thing that the Ninth Circuit held in its recent Malwarebytes decision, the case that we filed the brief in, uh, if that immunity were constrained in that way, uh, it would be a lot easier to sue Twitter just for making that tool available to others. And they may not, might not do it. Section 230 really uh, protects innovation here, and it protects not just uh, the exercise of editorial discretion in ways that people might think are biased, but also the development and offering of technological alternatives to today's status quo. Well, we've touched on the fact that Section 230 is a protection for many other actors than just big platforms. And yet, when I think of 230, it, it's become a natural instinct. I think Twitter and Facebook, I think it's just, it's gotten ingrained whether I like it or not. And that's, that's not right. And one case that your chapter discusses that I think is very interesting, both in terms of showing the way people's principles are shifting in weird ways right now, and how Section 230 applies more broadly is the the Federalist affair with Google AdSense and what happened with their comment section. So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that, that insight. Well, what's in this paper is a much abbreviated version of a longer discussion in our reply comments in the FCC proceeding. Uh, but the short version is, uh, I mentioned earlier that advertisers don't want to put their products up next to Holocaust denial or hate speech. Uh, and uh, many websites, uh, Boing Boing, um, Slate, TechDirt, have experienced problems with this because 
if you have the comments section on the same page as your article and you don't moderate or you don't use a tool that automatically moderates uh, content like that among user comments, uh, Google's algorithm will detect those and they will tell you that they're not going to run ads on that particular page unless those comments are taken down. Perfectly understandable. I mean, it's this is essentially the same principle as the the baker being able to decide where he uh, to whom he sells his his cakes. The the website Google uh, Google provides the ads. Uh, they serve up ads that are uh, on your that appear on your website. And they protect the uh, expectation of their advertisers uh, that, that those ads will only appear under certain circumstances. Uh, most websites have managed those things. Um, some have uh, decided, like Boing Boing, that it's too difficult and they're going to separate the user comments section uh, from each article. So they're, they're on two different pages. If you read the article and you want to comment, at the bottom you click comments, you go to a different page. That page does not have any ads. Uh, problem solved. Uh, other services have just tried to clean up their comments. Uh, TechDirt just kept user comments on the same page as each article and decided not to run ads at all. Uh, those are your options. Uh, the Federalist chose a different option, which is they uh, took down their comment section completely and then attacked Google for censoring and demonetizing them. And to this day, if you talk to any Republican in Washington, they will tell you again and again that uh, Google was trying to uh, to shut down uh, the Federalist by cutting off their advertising, when in reality, the Federalist could have done what Boing Boing did. They could have just separated the comment section. They could have uh, tried to clean up all the racist content posted by some of their users. Um, and they didn't, they didn't do that. I suspect that they realized that this actually provided them uh, an opportunity to disassociate themselves from the terrible things that were posted by many of their users, uh, while also getting to blame Google and getting uh, getting more PR out of this. Um, but you know, this is the reality of content moderation. As Mike Masnick says, it is impossible to do well at scale. Someone will always be pissed off. And fundamentally, I don't think the government should be injected in these debates any more than the government should be injected in the debate over whether the New York Times should have run Tom Cotton's op-ed uh, urging that troops be deployed into American cities. And yet the government is trying to get involved. You mentioned the NTIA petition. The NTIA is the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, and it is within the um, Department of Commerce, which means that the president has a lot more control over it than, say, complete control. FCC. So they were directed to file a petition to the FCC asking the FCC to make rules interpreting Section 230. Tech Freedom filed comments and a reply basically saying all the reasons that this is both unauthorized and a terrible idea. But now I, I, I think the better question at the moment is, is really where do we stand? Because the FCC announced that they are going to take up the NTIA's petition and undertake a rulemaking, but we've had an election and we're going to have a new administration. Well, so, according to some people. <laughs> according, according to a, a few people. Um, where does that leave things? Should we be wasting uh, breath on this now? Is it dead in the water? 
Well, this particular rulemaking idea is dead. I don't think that uh, Ajit Pai really wanted to touch this. I think he uh, put out that statement saying the FCC was going to proceed because uh, the White House was tired of having the White House call and scream at him uh, or tweet or rage tweet uh, about this. Uh, There simply isn't time. I mean, even if they did put out an NPRM, at most you'd get that out at the very end of the administration and the next administration is going to kill it. So uh, I don't think that's going to go anywhere, but this idea is not dead. Uh, Republicans love fighting about this. They love, uh, as uh, Commissioner Brennan Carr put it, they love portraying themselves as the party of free speech, um, simply because what they're against is content moderation, right? Uh, It's easy for them to say that they want more speech, when in reality, what they want is for websites not to be able to exercise their First Amendment right to decide what speech they do and don't want to carry. So that that is itself a form of actual censorship. Uh, And the kind of speech that uh, Republicans want these websites to leave up is some of the most disgusting, awful, hateful speech on the internet. Fundamentally, it's not for me to say, it's not for you to say, and it's not for the government to say, Uh, how private actors uh, should be allowed to make these decisions. That's up to them. Twitter and Facebook have taken very different approaches. If people want to go to Parler or Gab, that's their right. But I will note, and I note in this paper, that Parler and Gab and all the other conservative sites out there that host user content, all of them reserve broad discretion to take down, among other things, hateful, racist content, or my favorite is, Uh, The very term that Republicans want to uh, delete from the statute, uh, otherwise objectionable, uh, is one that you actually find uh, conservative sites using in their terms of service. So, again, uh, what's what's good for the goose is good for the gander. The First Amendment protects everybody's right to create their own online community to, to, to do this differently. Section 230 provides a procedural shortcut to exercise that right. And we should leave it as is. Uh, Republicans don't want to do that. I am hopeful that Democrats will come to understand that um, their concerns about hate speech and misinformation and and voter suppression and so on uh, can only be addressed by leaving in place Section 230, because the government cannot uh, police this kind of speech. The the category of speech the government could actually ban is extremely narrow. There are maybe kinds of voter suppression, of telling, of, of providing false information about when the election is and how to vote, those things could probably be justified under the Supreme Court's decision in Alvarez, uh, a bans on those things. Uh, but otherwise, hate speech and misinformation and so on uh, are just not things the government can regulate. They're up to private parties to regulate. And that's why we have Section 230. It, it ensures that the website uh, can do what it wants and that the internet doesn't just turn into a, uh, a constant stream of, uh, of falsehoods and expressions of the worst parts of human nature. Well, these points you're making really are valid. I, I think the NTIA petition may come and go, but as, as you mentioned, the arguments against it that you discuss in the chapter, I think, are important and are going to be needed going forward. So I encourage everyone to check out the chapter, uh, as well as the full GAI report, I wonder if they're giving out some kind of badge to anybody who reads it cover to cover. It's great stuff. 
Everything I've dipped in has been enlightening. But uh, what you've said is, is really tied into something I want to talk about for a few minutes in closing, which is how this all ties together. I think a, a lot of the people I see complaining about this, politicians in particular, have slipped into this game where they act like the platforms can somehow solve a much deeper societal problem through content moderation. Yeah, we cannot solve the problems of human nature through regulation. Uh, ultimately, what Section 230 does is it recognizes that we literally can't. The First Amendment doesn't allow us to try and that this, these uh, questions should be left up to websites to decide for themselves. And I just want to just close by noting that part of the problem with the, the uh, debate we're having about Section 230 is that it's really two debates. Everything we've been discussing today is about content moderation. The, the debate that, uh, that Democrats want to have and that Republicans uh, have, uh, have been having in some limited ways uh, is about liability for content that you, you do put up. That's, that's C1, right? So whether that's opioids or uh, uh, content that you are told is illegal under a court order or, or whatever, uh, that debate is a, is a very different one. That's what we usually talk about. Uh, the debate today we're talking about is, is really just about content moderation and, uh, and what legal remedies uh, there should be for it. And to summarize, the point of the paper is uh, those very narrow uh, causes of action that you might have today, Section 230 does not prevent you from bringing. Those things that, uh, beyond, that go beyond that, uh, you, even if you amended Section 230, you'd still lose in court on First Amendment grounds. So fundamentally, we should keep the law as it is. It protects uh, websites and, and users, uh, like President Trump retweeting uh, defamatory material. It protects them from being sued for that. And, uh, and the best we can hope for is to leave it as is and uh, encourage websites to, uh, to do a better job of balancing concerns about uh, lawful but awful content uh, with, uh, with other values. Well, your chapter opens with a quote from Darwin, and I think you've really encapsulated the notion that what Section 230 enables is a evolutionary, incremental process of problem solving at the uh, content moderator level, which I think is the most promising way for us to to sort of navigate these new issues and this new information. And I'm confident that uh, the moderators and people and society will adapt, but we can only hope. Um, thank you, Baron. It's been a lot of fun speaking with you. And uh, till next time, sir. Till next time, we can talk about uh, appellate litigation, which is one of the things you'll be uh, managing for us. Yes. Well, that and much else. There's much to do, and I, I look forward to, uh, to many episodes to come. Well, this has been the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Barthold. Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.